Well, good morning. If you are new here, my name is Zach DePrima. I am one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. And I want to invite all of you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We have just finished in our series through the book of Ephesians, uh, the first major section of the letter that can be found in verses 3 through 14. We now move from Paul's doxology, his uh, treatise of salvation, to his prayer for the Ephesian church in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, verses 15 through 23. I had a dream this week that I would be able to preach through this entire passage. And that dream has died a thousand deaths this week. And uh, it's my intention this morning to get through verses 15 through 19. Uh, I'm going to have us pray in a moment. But before I do, let's read verses 15 through 23. This is Paul's prayer. Verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go once more to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess our desperate need that you answer that same prayer that. The Apostle Paul prayed 2,000 years ago that you would grant to us a spirit of wisdom, that you would reveal knowledge to us today, knowledge of who you are, knowledge of what you have accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, knowledge of our hope, knowledge of your inheritance in the saints, knowledge of your great power that is at work within us. Lord, please work now in your spirit. Give unbelievers faith today. Help sinners to find Jesus, to welcome them today. Would you move in this place, we ask, by the power of Jesus Christ's name, amen. The Presbyterian Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he once said that if you wish to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. If you wish to humble a man or a woman, if you wish to humble a Christian, ask him or her about their prayer life. 
Most Christians, if not all, know that they ought to pray. Most Christians know that they ought to pray often. Nevertheless, many of us struggle with this indispensable discipline, the discipline, the grace of prayer. Yet if Christians struggle with prayer, it's not for lack of instruction in the Bible. It's not for lack of priority in the New Testament, and it's certainly not for lack of models. The Bible is packed with literally hundreds of prayers to the true and living God. We are given models for how God's people are to approach Him in prayer. At the feet of Jesus and the saints of old, you will learn how to praise God in prayer, how to confess your sin to your heavenly Father, how to express thanks, and how to righteously plead for the desires of your heart. We're instructed as to how to pray to God. Now, my sermon this morning is not primarily about prayer, but friends, if you wish to grow in prayer this morning, you need to look no further than the prayers of the Apostle Paul. If you read the, prayer, read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you will find frequently within them his prayers on behalf of the people of God. If you want to learn how to pray as a Christian, you need to look no further than the prayer life of Paul. And it is to one of those prayers that we give our attention this morning. As I said, the prayer we find is in verses 15 through 23. Uh, there's no chance we're going to get through all those verses this morning. Uh, but you can view this sermon as part one of a two-part sermon. Because I think the, the prayer is cohesive. It's one prayer, and I don't want us to lose track of that. If I were to outline uh, Paul's prayer, I think there would be sort of three points. First, there's thanksgiving in the prayer that we see in verses 15 through 16. Uh, next, you see Paul's actual petition. That is what he is pleading for God to do in the life of the Ephesian believers. And then you see actual praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see three things going on in this prayer. You see thanks to the living God on behalf of the Ephesians. You see uh, pleading with God for him to accomplish some work in the Ephesians. And then there's doxology. There's praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're only going to look at the first two parts of that prayer. We're going to look at the thanksgiving of the prayer. And we're going to look at the petition of the prayer this morning. Two points to the sermon today. Consider with me point number one, the thanks of the prayer. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. There's two things I want us to notice under this heading, this first heading, the thanks of the prayer. And that is first, the frequency and the character of Paul's prayer life. We learn something about the Apostle Paul in the frequency and the nature or the character of Paul's prayer life. He tells his readers that he prays ceaselessly for them. He says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, brothers and sisters, when we see that word ceaseless or that phrase, I do not cease to pray for you, the Apostle Paul should be taken very seriously. He should be taken sincerely. He should not be taken literally. It's not as if at every waking moment of the Apostle Paul's life, he was thinking about the Ephesians. It's not as if at every waking moment of the Apostle Paul's life, he was thanking God for the Ephesians, though he means this sincerely. 
the Ephesians were constantly on his mind. And more than that, he was constantly bearing their needs and thanking and praising God on behalf of the people of God, in particular here, the Ephesians. Paul committed himself to prayer. What I want us to see is Paul committed himself to a type of prayer. He committed himself to constant prayer. He committed himself to ceaseless prayer. 1 Thessalonians 1, the Apostle Paul writing to the Thessalonians, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. In Colossians 1, he says something similar. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. There was a consistency to the prayer life of the Apostle. There was a pervasiveness a steadfastness, a tenacity, an unwavering purpose to bear his soul to his God. Paul committed himself to prayer. He committed himself to constant, to ceaseless prayer. And more than this, Paul committed himself to prayer for people. He prayed for others. He prayed for Christians. He was always, constantly, ceaselessly praying for the people of God. When the Apostle Paul approached the throne of grace, he pled for others. When he blessed God for every spiritual blessing, he thanked God for people, the names, the faces, the testimonies, the anxieties, the concerns, the struggles and trials of real people formed the substance of his prayers to God. He bore in his breast the intimate burdens of hundreds of saints, if not thousands, and probably dozens, if not Hundreds of churches, the people of God, permeated his prayer life. He was always thinking of other Christians. He was always thinking of saints, their needs, their burdens. He was always thinking of the people of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not the main idea of the sermon, but it's worth asking. Do you pray for others? I'm not even asking if you pray, but, but when you pray... Do you pray for others? Or are your prayers merely fixated upon yourself? Uh, The needs of your heart, your life, your family, your household. Or do you pray for other people? Do you pray for Christians? Do you pray for Christ's cause in the world? Do you pray for this flock if you're a member of this church? Do you even know the members of this church well enough to know how to pray for them? The Apostle James is very clear. He says, the prayers of a righteous man are of great power. They're of great might. They are of great working. The King James says, they availeth much. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your prayers are needed by the saints? Your prayers are needed by the people of God. Christian, I need your prayers working for me. I need the prayers of righteous men and women marshaled on my behalf. I need the prayers of saints to surround me on the left, to surround me on the right. I need the support of saints to strengthen my weak knees and to hold my hands up. And you need that too. You need the prayers of the people of God on your behalf. We need to be praying for one another. The Apostle Paul, when he goes to pray pray to God... When he addresses the God through whom every family is named, he prays for people. He prays for churches. And I'll add to that, if if you pray for people, and when you pray for people, to tell them that you're praying for them. 
You notice the Apostle Paul's pattern. Not only is he always, ceaselessly, constantly praying for God's people, he tells them that he's praying for them. He says, hey, hey, when, when I approach God the Father in heaven, I want you to know this is what I say to him on your behalf. This is what I thank God for in your life. This is what I bless him for, and this is what I ask him to do and accomplish in your life. Brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing. Brother, I'm praying for you. I, I want you to know when I prayed to God this morning, I, I was thanking him for every expression of grace in your life. I was thanking him for the fact that you're not the man or woman that you used to be. You are fighting sin in your life. And I see God's grace constantly at work in your life. I see sins no longer present in your life that were present five years ago. And I want you to know I'm praying that the spirit of our God would be at work in your life. And you would put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the spirit. And you would be raised to newness of life. This is what I pray for you. I want you to know this. There's this type of performance in prayer that Christians ought to avoid. Jesus talks about this, those who pray to be praised by men. We, we want to totally avoid that type of prayer life. But the Bible is packed with not only prayers for God's people, but faithful men and women telling each other that they are praying for one another. Paul did not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians, remembering them in his prayers. Now, what did Paul thank God for? Consider secondly under this heading, the reason for Paul's thanksgiving, the source of Paul's praise. Paul says he heard of their faith. He says he heard of their faith and of their love towards all the saints. It's worth remembering the Apostle Paul's relationship with the Ephesians at this point. Apostle Paul, he planted a church in Ephesus. He spent more time in Ephesus than any other place uh, that we know of in his ministry. He was there for two to three years. Uh, this area, this region, this church was, was dear to the Apostle Paul. Uh, when he left the Ephesians, they shed tears over his departure. Now, at this point, though, Paul is writing this letter likely seven years after he's been in Ephesus. And I think a lot of things had changed in Ephesus since he's been there last. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he doesn't express a whole lot of intimate knowledge of the Ephesians. Uh, he doesn't share too much personal information about them. And I think it's because a lot's changed in Ephesus since he's been there last. But regardless, Paul is writing to real people. He's writing to real Christians. And with the knowledge that he does have, he thanks God for them. Now, what does he thank God for? The text says in verse 15, for this reason, I, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. Two things, faith and love. He thanks God for their faith in Jesus Christ and of their love for God's people. That's what a saint is. A saint is a Christian. He's, he's heard about their great love for one another, and he wants to know he thanks God for those two things. Now, we should think at this point, is he mentioning faith and love at random? Like, hey, I've heard a lot of things about you. I'm particularly thankful for these two things just because. Or is it the case that there is an inseparable link between faith and love? I think it's the latter. Friends, wherever there is true faith, love for God's people follow. And whenever there is true love for God's people, it is always an evidence of true faith. Wherever true faith in Christ can be found, love for God's people will always be present. 
And wherever true love for the people of God is manifest, it demonstrates an abiding, active, thriving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord said to his disciples in John 13, he washed their feet. And then what did he say to them? He gave them a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people know and shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We hear that commandment so often it can be lost on us. Do you appreciate what Jesus is saying? He says, I have loved you. And you are called to love your brothers and sisters in Christ the way I have loved you. And here's something about that love. If somebody wants to know what a Christian is, if they want to know if you have the Spirit of God within your heart, they'll know by how you love God's people. They'll know by how you give yourself to the lives of the saints, how you dedicate yourself to the church. That's how they'll know that I am real. That's how they'll know that you're a disciple of Christ. That's how you'll know that they, his disciples, are true followers of Christ. This is why the Apostle John, he can say, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There's a passing from death to life that manifests itself in love, that manifests itself in real expressions and care and devotion for God's people. I was converted when I was 10 years old. I became a Christian. God saved me by his grace. By his grace, I was born into a Christian family that always brought me into faithful churches and always had me under the solid preaching of God's word. And something happened around age 9 or 10. I was convicted of my sin, and I fled to the Lord Jesus Christ. I asked God to forgive my sins. I repented, and I trusted in the Lord Jesus. But what happens a lot when you're saved when you're 10 or as a child at a young age, you often struggle to know how do I know God has actually changed my life? I don't know what you were like with when you were 10, but it's not like I you know, quit dealing drugs on the playground. Uh, I didn't have a, a, a girlfriend I was living with that I need to repent of a, of a, of a sinful lifestyle. Uh, don't get me wrong, I was a sinner. I was a rebel. I was intercepted for God's glory. But, but there wasn't this overt and obvious sin in my life that I needed to turn from, or at least it wasn't clear to me. So I struggled from age 10 to 11 to 12 to 13, knowing how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know? Yeah, I believe the message. I repent of my sins. But how do I know that God has actually caused me to be one of those people that has passed from death to life? And one of the things that God used more than anything else in my life was there was an inexplicable love in my heart for the people of God. There was a love for the members of the local church that I attended. And there was a love that I couldn't explain for anything in them, any shared experience that they had, any shared quality that we had, other than that they loved the same Jesus Christ. And he had died for them. He had bled for them. God had done a work in their heart. He had done a work in my heart and therefore had united us together. I remember there were elderly folks, Mary Ann Gailey, Robert Fisher, Bob Dikema. No reason for me to love them apart from the love of Christ. It had united us. And I knew only God could do that. Only God can create that type of love within my heart. Because I can't create it on my own. 
Brothers and sisters, faith goes public in the display of love, of love for God's people. Saints think about other saints. Christians exert effort for other Christians. They burn calories on the people of God. The hearts of saints, they swell with affection for their brothers and sisters in Christ. There is an instinctive love, Christian, that you ought to feel every time you meet a child of God because they're bought by the blood of your Savior and He has united you into one spiritual family. This is why we hear this text so often, but this is why the Apostle Paul, he says so clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. In the mind of the Apostle Paul, the, this idea that you could have such faith that you remove mountains and have not love, that's a contradiction in terms. That doesn't exist. Because wherever there is true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, love always follows. And wherever there is true love for the people of God, that's a manifestation of faith in Jesus Christ. So now faith, hope, and love, they abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Brothers and sisters, to be in Christ is to commit ourselves to the expression of a supernatural love for the people of God. For the people of God everywhere, especially in the local church. This is the calling of the Christian. Christian, how deep is your love for the people of God? The extraordinary nature of God's grace should produce an unparalleled affection for other believers. Do we believe what is true of us? We have passed from dark darkness into light. We are a royal priesthood. We proclaim the excellencies of him who have called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us living stones, which together we form a habitation of praise to God. This isn't natural th stuff. This isn't a natural work. It takes the power of God. It takes the power of God to redeem people. It takes the power of God to make loveless people love each other and to have affection for the people of God. What does Christian love look like? It looks like believers serving other Christians like they are their own family because they are their family. Christian love looks like shining, sharing your life with your brothers and sisters, opening up your hearts to the people of God, making your needs known. Christian love looks like, like bringing meals to those in need. Christian love looks like reading your church directory, memorizing faces and names, endeavoring to know the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian love looks like an eagerness to forgive others of the most major and most minor offenses. Because the Apostle Paul is right when he says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It endures all things. Brothers and sisters, Paul thanks God for the faith and the love 
of the saints in Ephesus. This is the thanksgiving of his prayer. Now let's move to consider, secondly, the actual petition of the prayer. He's praised God for what he has done in the saints, their faith and love. Now, what does he actually plead? What does he actually ask God to do in their lives? Look at verse 17. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. His prayer is that God would give his spirit that they would understand the things of God. Now before we sort of dive into unpacking the petition that we see in verses 17 through 19, I want us to ask the simple question, who is God, or who is Paul rather, addressing? Who is he addressing in prayer? This might seem like a tedious question to ask. It might seem like an overly pedantic question to ask, but there's a reason I think this is in the Bible. Paul says we are worshiping or we're praying, he's praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. I won't be able to unpack this this morning, but there's a way in which God, the first person in the Trinity, is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to understand that, we need to understand the nature of Jesus Christ. He is truly God, fully God, and he is fully man. I believe when when Jesus is referred to, or God is referred to as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a way in which The incarnate son relates to God according to his humanity. If you want to hear more about that, we unpacked that a few weeks ago when we saw that phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to focus on this phrase, the Father of glory. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now some think that that glory is referring to Jesus Christ. He's the expression of, of God's glory. Uh, I think it's it's more accurately rendered uh, the glorious father or the father who is glorious. Paul is addressing the father and it's that father of whom glory is the essence. And remember what glory is, it is the uh, public expression of the intrinsic value of God. God's glory is the outward expression or radiance of his inward perfection and beauty. It's it's God's character going public. And God is the God of glory. He's the Father of glory. This isn't the main idea of the text, but it's, it's worth noticing. Who is Paul addressing in prayer? He's addressing the Father. I don't think it's inappropriate to address Jesus Christ in prayer. I think we see a couple examples of that in the Bible. We see in Revelation, the Apostle John, he prays, Come, Lord, soon. Come, Lord, quickly. I don't think it's inappropriate to address the Holy Spirit in prayer. Um, Ephesians 4 says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. So to me, theologically, it's not inappropriate to confess sin to the Holy Spirit and to repent to the Holy Spirit. But brothers and sisters, if we want to think biblically, if we want to think as Christians, and if we want to pray as Christians, we should appreciate that the instructed pattern and the ordinary pattern that we see in the Bible is prayer to the Father. Our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And every one of the Apostle Paul's prayer are going to be addressed to the Father. He bows his knees before the Father in heaven. 
And we should appreciate the nature of prayer. This is why we pray in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Most of us, when we finish praying, we say, through our Lord Jesus Christ, or in Jesus' name, amen. We don't say in your name, because we're addressing the Father. We don't say in the Father's name, or in the Spirit's name. No, we approach the Father, the God of lights, the Holy One, on the merits of Jesus Christ. It is only because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and rising on behalf of our justification that we can have any shot, any ability to approach God the Father in heaven. Paul addresses the glorious Father. Now, why does he say the glorious Father? He does so because he's about to request glorious things. He's about to ask for glorious things to be accomplished on behalf of of the Ephesians. We can only see the glory of God, friends, by the power of the Father of glory. To encounter God in any way is to acquaint oneself with His glory. We only see that which He displays of Himself. Thus, the burden of Paul's prayer is that we would be able to see glorious things by the power of God's Spirit. Therefore, He's approaching the source of that glory. We need glory So we go to the source. When I need water, I go to a fountain. I go to a sink. I go to a faucet. When I need nails, I go to the nail store. When I need eggs, I go to the farm or I go to the grocery store. When we need glory, we can only go to the source of that glory, which is the Father of all glory. He is our glorious Father. What does Paul request in this prayer? What does he request of the Father of glory. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What's the main substance of this prayer? What is the soul of this petition? It is a petition for spiritual sight in order to perceive certain truths. What's Paul praying for? What is he pleading with God on behalf of the Ephesians? He's praying for spiritual sight to perceive certain truths. He says that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom. Numa Sophias. The editors of the ESV, they are right when they capitalize that word spirit. He's not saying that you would have some sort of nebulous idea or a spirit of wisdom that reveals things to you. No, no, no. This is the second per- this is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God must accomplish something in the lives of the Ephesians. Now, if you were here last week, that supposition might give you pause. Didn't Paul just say in verse 13 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit? Didn't he just say we, we, we already have the Holy Spirit? We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And now in the next breath, he's asking that God would give the Holy Spirit. Paul thinks and has said and has told the Ephesians and reminded them, hey, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's part of your inheritance. It happens through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, hey, I'm praying that God would give you the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? Well, friends, it's here we must understand how the Bible and what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. There's three things I want to draw our attention to about the Spirit of God from the Scriptures. The first thing, friends, is the Bible teaches that all Christians have the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
That is to say, all Christians have the Spirit of God. All Christians uh, uh, have the Spirit, are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. So to say somebody does not have any fruit of the Spirit is to say they don't have the Spirit of God, uh, which is to say they're, they're unsaved, they're not a Christian. No, no, the Bible teaches that all Christians have the Spirit of God, and they exhibit fruit of the, and they exhibit fruit of the Spirit. Moreover, it is through the Spirit that we have access to God as our Father. The Bible teaches the presence of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, the Bible teaches something about the application of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. There are varying degrees of application of God's Spirit in your life if you are a Christian. Yes, all Christians have the Spirit of God. Yet Christians can be filled with different measures of the Spirit's work in their life. Christians can have varying degrees of the Spirit's power. Now, I'm not talking about a sort of Pentecostal second blessing. That is something experience, uh, Christians experience once in time post-conversion. But I am saying that Christians can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Christian can, Christians can have varying measures of, of, work, of work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This is why throughout the book of Acts, we see the apostles and other believers, they have the Holy Spirit, they've been converted, they have been changed by God's grace, Yet they accomplish certain ta tasks by the Spirit's power. The Bible talks often about people being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul will say, put to death sin by the instrument of the Holy Spirit. If by uh, the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. He's talking to Christians there. If you use that Spirit of God which you already have, you will live. Paul says in Galatians 5, that Christians should keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And they should, day in and day out, put on more of the fruit of the Spirit. They should live by the Spirit's leading. Real Christians who have the Holy Spirit, they need to respond to the Spirit's leading in their life and to keep in step with the Spirit. Or look over at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 18. What is, to some of us, a strange verse. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What is Paul talking about there? What's the connection or the contrast between being drunk with wine and being uh, in step and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, to be drunk with wine or drunk with alcohol, you, you're, you're influenced by that substance. You are mastered by that substance. There's a reason why if you're drunk and you get pulled over, uh, it's called driving under the influence. And Paul is saying, hey, don't get drunk with wine. Don't live under the influence or mastery of alcohol. He's not saying don't drink, but don't get drunk with these substances. Rather, live by the influence of the spirits. Live by the spirits mastery in your life. Don't get drunk with wine. No, live by the spirits leading. That person of the Trinity that you already have, be responsive to his leading in your life. That's the application of the Spirit. Third, we must understand, and this is so important for our text, we must understand what is the role of the Holy Spirit. And by this, I mean what is the, the main role that the Bible conveys uh, that is the Holy Spirit's. 
The Spirit's role is that of revealer. The, the Spirit's role is to help us to understand truth. Jesus Christ says in the upper room, I will send you a helper to you, and he will lead you in all truth. He will reveal my truth to you. The Spirit of God is not the God of mysterious, strange, and spontaneous impulses. No, the Spirit of God's job is to reveal Christ to us, is to reveal truth to us, is to reveal knowledge to us. Eyes that were blind will now see. And this is something that Christians experience again and again and again throughout their lives. That's why J.I. Packer, I think, is correct when he, he speaks of the Holy Spirit as spotlight or, or of a, a floodlight. Um, it's almost springtime, and I'm allotted a certain amount of baseball illustrations per year. So when you go to a baseball game and you watch the Braves probably win, uh, you will go to the baseball game, and you'll go to an evening game, you'll enjoy the whole game, and you'll get home, and the next day you'll talk about what you saw. I bet you none of us talk about the lights at the baseball game. We won't talk about the lights. Why? Because we're not focused on the lights. But we need the lights because if we don't have those lights, we can't see the game. I can't see the baseball diamond. I can't see the players play. I can't see the ball. I can't see anything. I need the light to cast his light upon that game so that I can see. Well, the Holy Spirit is something like that. The Spirit of God doesn't draw attention to himself. The Spirit of God is constantly casting his gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be changed. The same power that brings light from darkness has shined in our hearts that we might be able to perceive the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the Spirit's work, and that is what Paul is praying for. He says that he would give you the Spirit of wisdom in the revelation, of the revelation, in the knowledge of Him. He prays that this Spirit would reveal knowledge. Now, friends, that word knowledge does not refer to the sheer comprehension of facts, like the, the downloading of data. No, no, it's so much more than that. The type of knowing there is a spiritual knowing. It's a covenantal knowing. It's not unlike the knowing that we see in Genesis, where Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. It is an intimate knowledge. It is a heart knowledge. It's the same type of knowledge that our Lord prophesied in Jeremiah 31 when he said, my people under this new covenant, they all shall know me. It's not that they'll know who I am. It's that we will have a covenant relationship with one another. We will love one another. There will be heart knowledge of God from the people of God. That's the type of knowledge that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1. A spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prays for that comprehension of the glory of God wrought only by the Spirit of God. He's praying for a miracle. This is a miracle because only through the power of God can sinful minds and hearts love Him. And I know this is what Paul is getting at for that next phrase. He says that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. As Christians, we can be so familiar with such terms that we can forget to ask the types of questions we ought to be asking when we see terms like that. He says, the eyes of your heart. My heart doesn't have eyes. Your heart doesn't have eyes. What is the apostle talking about? 
Friends, he's not talking about the organ in your chest. He refers to that part of your person where your affections reside. That part of your person which loves, that part of your person which feels. The heart is valuative. It makes value. The heart is affectional. It makes judgments. It assigns worth. For Paul to pray for the blind eyes of the heart to see is a prayer that we would be so changed that we love God. It is a prayer that the true seen by my heart, that is comprehended by my soul, that is seized upon by my bones, that it would change my life. Friends, the Christian's great need is soul comprehension. That is your great need is the comprehension of the soul. It is heart knowledge. It is an affectional grasp of the things of God. His salvation in your life. The Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glories, all of His preciousness. Like plants need oxygen in the sun. Christians need light. They need spirit-empowered sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer is a prayer that the Spirit of God would give knowledge, would give understanding. Now, what are the things that he says that they need to understand? There are three things Paul highlights in our text in verses 18 and 19. He highlights that they need to understand hope, they need to understand riches, and they need to understand power. Hope, riches, power. Hope in their inheritance, uh, riches of God's inheritance in the saints, and the power uh, that is at work in their salvation. Consider first the hope to which he has called you. Paul says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is another way of Paul to refer to the inheritance that we have in Christ. Our inheritance, as we saw last week, is a perfect eternal reward that is kept in heaven that waits to be revealed and received on the future day of redemption. Christians wait and they live in hope of that great day of redemption where they shall receive and they shall be revealed their inheritance in Christ. We receive fellowship with the true and living God. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Titus 2, he says that Christians wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait. We live in hope, bright expectation of that glorious day. Christian's hope produces a robust, a vibrant, thriving, dynamic anticipation at the returning of our Lord. The Christian life is not a story of learning how to muddle through somehow in despair and despondency. No, it's a hope that lifts us. It's a hope that rouses us. It's a hope that causes us to live with pulsating anticipation in that which is to come. Romans 5 says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul's prayer is the spirit of wisdom would reveal the knowledge of this hope. And Christian, you may wonder today, or you may be feeling today, I don't live with much hope. I feel that my faith, as that hymn says, is often failing. My love is often low. My hope is at low ebb. And you might wonder, what do I do when I lack hope? What do I do when I lack faith? Yeah, I know I'm a Christian. 
I know I'm a child of God. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to be raised in the last dead, but I don't live with that much hope. I am distracted by the cares of the world. My life is so good, I don't really even look forward to the future. Or my life is so bad, it's difficult for me to expect that anything good can happen. Anything good can come of all of this. What do you do when you don't have hope? Brothers and sisters, there's so many things that you should do. There's so many ways that I would encourage you if you lack hope. There's certain disciplines in the Christian life. There's certain graces. There's certain people you should be talking to. You should be giving yourself to the life of the church, but you should be doing nothing less than exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this prayer, and that is begging God, the Father of glory, to give you His Spirit. We can't see anything without the Spirit of God. We can't know anything without the Spirit of God. I can't live with any sort of hope unless God, by the miracle of His Spirit, reveals it to my dead heart, removes the scales from my eyes, helps me in all my haziness to perceive something of the majesty of His character that happens in the moment of salvation. It happens every day of the Christian life. We need the Spirit of God to reveal His truth to us. You need a miracle every day, Christian, to happen in your heart that you would not only love the Lord, but live in glorious hope of what is to come. I can't convince you of this. Your friends can't convince you of this. No preacher online can convince you of this. You need the Spirit of the living God to have His way with you, that you would be able to perceive something of the glories of this text, something of the glories of that which lies ahead. Jesus Christ says that the Father is so ready. He's so eager to give the Spirit of God to us if we ask. He says this in Luke 11. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You need hope. Then plead with God that he would give you more sight through the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul prays first for hope. He prays secondly for riches. He prays that they would understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are those riches? And up to this point, that word inheritance... I have argued, has referred to primarily what Christians receive on the last day, what they receive in Christ. When we see that word inheritance in the Bible, that's normally what it's referring to. Yet here, it says the riches of what God will receive in his people, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul indicates that saints are those who will be possessed by God. This is why Romans 8 says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. All creation, all the cosmos, rocks, hills, mountains, trees, rivers, seas, oceans, they're all writhing in anticipation for the great revelation of the sons of God, God's people. And that great moment where they are received fully and perfectly and completely by our Heavenly Father, that great moment of reconciliation. All creation waits for the revelation of the sons of God. Friends, in the drama of, the sal of salvation, the Father is not a faceless, unfeeling force, merely brokering fellowship between us and Christ. 
Now the Father in eternity past has set his love upon you. The Father in eternity past, before the foundations of the world were met, he elected you in love in Christ. He adopted you as his son. The Father has set his love upon you. He's redeemed you by the blood of his son. He sent his son on the mission to secure a people of his own possession. You belong to him. You're his treasured possession. You are people of his own pleasure. The Father loves us. And now, he eagerly waits for the perfect revelation of his sons. This is why the prophet can say in Zephaniah, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, our Father loves us. So many people, they go through the Christian life Warm relationship to Christ, furrowed brow above from the Father. That is not what the Bible teaches. He has set his love upon us in eternity past. He will rejoice over us. He will exult over us with loud singing. Psalm 16, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And as we sing, those he saves are his delight. He will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. You are precious in the eyes of the Father. He loves you. And He awaits the revelation of His sons. He awaits His great inheritance of the people that He has purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants his readers to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. As those who form the church of the living God, we are his treasured possession. We are the people of his pleasure. Our God, he teems, he brims, he beams with anticipation at the final reception of the saints. Paul wants us to know hope. He wants us to know riches. Thirdly, and lastly, he wants us to know power. He says in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Paul refers to power. The Greek word is dunamis. It's that word from which we get our English word dynamite. It refers to power. He refers to working. It's the Greek word from which we get our word energy. He refers to might, power, working, might. And though these phrases, they have different connotations and emphases in Greek, Paul's main thrust is to rhetorically underscore the phenomenal power at work in our salvation. Like what it actually takes to make blind men see. What it actually takes to bring you from the dead. He wants us to comprehend something of the great power that it took to redeem us. He'll say in chapter 5, this is unbelievable. He'll say, you at one time were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. He doesn't say you were like darkness. He doesn't say you once walked in darkness. He says you were darkness. And God has made you light in the Lord. That takes a miracle. That takes the supernatural power of God. And the Apostle Paul he prays for these Ephesians that they would comprehend by the Spirit's power something of God's great power to save them. 
It took power, friends, to turn darkness into light. It took power to make deaf men, li- deaf men here, to make dead men alive. It took power to reconcile rebels. It took power to unchain captives. It took power to give sight to the blind. It took power to give faith to the faithless and to love people so much that loveless hearts produce love. Friends, matchless and mighty is the greatness of God's power. It's immeasurable, Paul says. Except there is one measure he uses. And it's that measure we see in verse 20, where he says that, wor- that power, that might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It took resurrection power to save us. It took ascension power to save us. According to Paul, the same power that delivered Christ from Sheol, from death, from Hades, from destruction, and elevated him to the highest station imaginable, is the same power, friends, that is at work in our salvation. Do you understand what it took to save you? Do you understand what it's going to take to redeem your body on the last day? Do you understand the great power that is at work to keep you in the faith? We are to comprehend what is the power that was at work in the resurrection of our Lord and His ascension to the highest station. Romans 8, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he's not curious about that. If you are in Christ, Christian, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Christian, we should comprehend the great power that it took to save us. Only the power of God can remove the stony heart and assign a heart of flesh. And that same power that saved you at the moment of first belief is the same power that will bring you home. And it's the same power at work in your life today. You put on Christ today by the the power of the Spirit that raised Him from the dead. You fight sin. You cut off hands and pluck out eyes. You war with that sin that clings so closely through that same great might, that same great working, that same great power that delivered Jesus from Sheol and ascended Him to the right hand of the Father. We follow our Lord's leading by this same power that is work within us, which can lead the Paul to say, now to him who is able to do far more than we ask or think, according to the great power that is at work within us. To him be all glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we pray that you would accomplish this miracle in our hearts this morning. That you would give us soul sight. That you would give us heart comprehension and knowledge, ears to hear. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you give us greater insight into the mystery of salvation. Greater insight to the hope to which we look forward. 
to your great inheritance in the saints. Woe's riches. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, we would be able to comprehend the great power that saved us. That is at work in our lives even now. Lord, help us now as we worship you. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.